the Jewish views on Article 50. As the official countdown to the UK leaving the European Union begins, we ask how will it affect the continental community? Gone for a Burton, we find out about the new play by Norma Cohen from director Jake Murray, and we meet two of the truly remarkable recipients of UJIA's Young Leadership Award. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The former mayor of London, Ken Livingstone, who was suspended from the Labour Party nearly a year ago over allegations of anti-Semitism, has dismissed criticism of his controversial comments about Hitler and added that there was real collaboration between Nazis and Zionists before World War II. Mr Livingstone faced a charge of engaging in conduct that was grossly detrimental to the party as he went before a misconduct panel. He also said Labour was pursuing the case against him in a partisan way, suggesting there was a witch hunt aimed at critics of Israel. Rabbis and Jewish community representatives joined other religious leaders at a vigil on Westminster Bridge to pay their respects to the victims of last week's terrorist attack there. Also among those who said they were standing against all forms of extremism and hate with the Union of Jewish Students and the Board of Deputies. The United Synagogue has updated its child protection policy to ensure that there are trained officers at every level of the organisation who can teach community members how to spot signs of abuse. Those who lead children's activities will be expected to undergo a half-day training session and there will also be an information video. Two years ago, the chief rabbi, Ephraim Mervis, said child abuse is a serious crime and we have an obligation to safeguard the children of our community. Iran has imposed sanctions on 15 American companies over their alleged support for Israel. The announcement, which was made by the Iranian foreign ministry, accused the United States of propping up what it called the Zionist regime and of suppressing civilians in the region. The move is largely symbolic because the firms don't do business with Iran. It comes as the U.S. issued new sanctions on several foreign firms accused of supporting Iran's weapons program. And finally, a blue cartoon character called a Smurfette graced billboards across Israel promoting the film Smurfs The Lost Village. Everywhere, that is, except in the Haredi Orthodox neighbourhood of B'nai Brak. Why? Well, a Smurfette is a female Smurf, and she was airbrushed from the poster out of respect for the community's stringent modesty standards. That's the news. Andrew has the sport. Thank you very much, Viv. Andy Landsberg's London Lions side wrote their name into the club's record books at the weekend as they secured an historic League and Cup double. Their 5-0 win at Hatfield Social, which saw them claim the Hart Senior County League Premier Division title, came three days after they beat Wadson Park to lift the Hart Centenary Trophy. And their season is far from over, as they could yet complete a treble with them being through to the last four of the Albury Cup. One of Jewish football's most successful sides over the past 25 years has withdrawn from the Maccabi League. Faithfold A won numerous League and Cup trophies, while also becoming the first Jewish side to win the London Intermediate Cup in 2013. However, manager Rob Schumann said a lack of commitment and enthusiasm from the players led to their ultimate demise. And finally, Brighton striker Tomer Hamed has been banned from Israel's next two games after he publicly criticised his manager for leaving him out of their starting eleven against Spain. 
Israel lost their 2018 World Cup qualifier 4-1, with manager Elisha Levy saying, I expect professional players to know how to conduct themselves even if they aren't playing. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave and let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and news editor Justin Cohen. Welcome to you both. Let us start off with the front page and a certain Ken Livingston makes the front page this week. Justin, how come? Yes, finally. It's been a long time since we've had Ken Livingston on the front page, but finally the long-running saga of his suspension from Labour looks like it's about to come to an end. He, this week, appears before three members of the National Constitutional Committee, and it will be up to those three people to decide his fate within the Labour Party. You'll remember 11 months ago, he was suspended from the party after defending Naz Shah, going around the radio studios and talking about how what Naz Shah had done, posting a social media post on Facebook that talked about transferring Israel to the US as being a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He then went around the radio studios defending her, saying that that wasn't anti-Semitic. And in the process of doing so, spoke about how Hitler supported Zionism. In the wake of that, there were large protests, as you can imagine, within the party, within the community and so on. And as a result, he was suspended by the party, in particular for bringing the party into disrepute, not specifically for those comments he made, but for the aftermath of it. Now it's up to the National Constitutional Committee to decide his fate. They could decide to expel him if they found him guilty of that charge of bringing the party into disrepute. There are other punishments also available to them that include, for example, barring him from running for elected office for the Labour Party. But he has already warned that if he is expelled, and he says he expects to be, then he will launch a judicial review and take this to the courts. This case has already cost, you would imagine, a lot of money, both for him and the Labour Party in defending this case. And it could not be over, even if it appears to be. Well, we should point out, obviously, that this is all relevant at the time of recording this particular episode of The Jewish Views. It may well be that when you listen to this yourself, that you know the outcome of what has happened with Ken Livingston. But for the sake of this recording, it is still pie in the sky to us. But Rich, it does feel a little bit like this has dragged on. Could it finally be, as Justin was saying, that maybe at last we will know how Labour plans to react to what an awful lot of people have found to be nothing short of abhorrent comments and also abhorrent defending? Well, as we sit here today, we hope that the verdict will draw a line in the sand and that Labour will finally, after 11 long, laborious months, finally get a handle on this situation and send out the right message to the community. Again, as we sit here now, I wouldn't want to hedge my bets, and I'm certainly no bookie. I would hope that with my community hat on, that the right course of action is taken and that Ken Livingston is finally expelled from the party. He is yesterday's man. People like John Landsman, head of Momentum, a big acolyte of of Jeremy Corbyn, has said himself that he feels that Ken Livingston's time is up. So we are dealing with somebody who I don't think has a future in the Labour Party, who's seen as a luminary, somebody who's had a, a great past in the party that surely, finally must be put out to pasture and and hopefully see the error of his ways. Well, in the interest of balance, I think we do have to say that there are, of course, 
course, those who probably would think that Ken Livingston's time in the party is not over and therefore we should respect that some people do think along those lines. Equally, we should also say that Mr Livingston himself defended those comments we mentioned before about Hitler supporting Zionism potentially on the premise that he said that Hitler wanted to see Jews all together in one country and therefore his argument was that potentially he supported Zionism. Now when you put it like that of course one would be forgiven for thinking that's not exactly an accurate assessment but anyway I understand that you've also been asking people what they think of the matter as well haven't you Justin? That's right. We've actually commissioned an exclusive Jewish news poll with Comres this week. We were looking at what people feel about the Ken Livingston case in particular and also about the issue of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. It's been a while since that issue has been tested within the general public. So Comres over the weekend polled about 2,000 British voters. And the feeling was that among nearly one in three voters that Ken Livingston should be expelled from the party... I have to say that that goes down to about 23% for Labour voters. More Labour voters, in fact, 31% believe he should not be expelled and 45% don't know. So there's certainly a suggestion there. And we've got some analysis from the chairman of Comres that suggests that that level of don't knows means either people don't care simply or that they're unaware of this case and the details of it. Other figures, for example, I think possibly the most significant figure is that the impact electorally that the issue of anti-Semitism could have on the Labour Party. A staggering 43% of people who would vote Lib Dems if there was an election tomorrow are suggesting that they would think twice about voting Labour specifically because of all the allegations of anti-Semitism that have dogged the party. Fascinating times. Okay, well, we will see what happens. And of course, like I said, by listening to this podcast, you may already know the outcome at the time of listening to this. But for the purpose of this recording, we don't. There is other news in the paper this week, unbelievably enough. So let's look at some of that. The UN, they are being put in their place by the UK, aren't they? Yeah, back at the end of last year, the UK refused to block a vote at the United Nations against settlement building. Well, last week, the UK have redressed the balance and some people are saying it could be a turning point. They've put the UN's Human Rights Council on notice for its supposed, I suppose it's clear to many people, transparent agenda, shall we say, against Israel. They've had, I think, 135 resolutions specifically on different countries. 68, that's 68 of that 135, have been specifically about Israel. Selective focus, clearly, and the UK has said they're not going to stand for that anymore longer and if this one-eyed nonsense continues they will block any anti-Israel resolution that's heard by the council. Hopefully a moral breakthrough, hopefully a turning point at last. It does seem absolutely unfathomable the fact that half or nearly half of what you say in terms of the UN has put forward has been over Israel. And somehow that doesn't seem like the spirit of the UN, does it? The, the, the straw that broke the camel's back was actually specifically a resolution about Syria and about not Assad and the, the horrors that have been played out in Syria over the last five or six years, but Israel's actions in the Golan. That was the resolution that was put forward. So clearly there is the transparency right there. And there is the one-eyed nonsense that I think has moved the UK to act as it did. 
Though, of course, we do have to be painfully aware that no official representative from the UN is here to defend themselves, so we have to say that, to be fair. Any odd way, let's have a look at one more news item, and let's end on a slightly lighter note, shall we? Your Jewish dad. Uh, now, that's that's not specifically targeted at either of you, but that's actually the name, I believe, of a new Facebook group that's well, taken the social media world by storm. Yeah, well, as a Jewish dad, I will take this criticism squarely on, on, on the chin. When... It's Your Jewish Dad Talk UK. It's this new Facebook group that's been started by two young guys, two students, Adam Goot and Alex Schlesinger, 19-year-olds from Cambridge University. They've had about 6,000 people follow this remarkable group in the last few days. And it's all things that typically your dad would say, your Jewish dad would say. And I think what's really gathered people's interest here and sparked their enthusiasm is that a lot of people think it's just their dads that say this, but clearly a lot of this stuff is cliché. So there's a whole list of fun little things like your dad keeps an emergency kippah in the glove compartment. Your dad uses his phone on Shabbat to check what time it goes out. Silly little things that that show that most families are pretty similar at the end of the day. And that Jewish dads, perhaps not myself included, are maybe walking, talking cliches. I'm slightly worried, though, because I definitely keep an emergency kippah in the glove box. And I, I am not a Jewish dad. I am Jewish, but I'm not a dad. And you're sure, Phil? So, well, there are rumours. Say, to the best of my knowledge, I am not. So uh, let's go with that, shall we? We are. I, th- I think the success of this group in such a short time, I think it was set up maybe three or four days ago. And, and Richard mentioned 6,000 members. I suspect during the course of this broadcast, it's probably up to about 7,000. It really is going uh, like the clappers, as they say. And I think that it's one of the, the greatest social media successes the Jewish community has seen, literally, in the recent years. Well, I have no idea who's doing their social media marketing, but they can certainly come and work for the Jewish Views, or indeed the Jewish News, anytime they want. But I'm afraid that's where we do have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week. But thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Yet another week and yet another historic event. It's official. Article 50 has been triggered and the UK has begun the formal process of leaving the European Union. One of the biggest controversies to come out of the decision to leave the EU is the recorded rise in hate crimes against minorities since June 23rd last year. Advertising company Grey has come up with an interesting way to highlight this and combat the alarming level of tolerance or potential lack of thereafter. They've gone back to their original name as set up by the company's Jewish founders Lawrence Valenstein and Arthur Fatt. To find out more, I've been speaking to CEO of Valenstein and Fat, Leo Raymond. I started by asking him to tell us why the company thought this was their issue to highlight. We were talking about doing something for the centenary of the company. So it was founded in 1917 and lots of ideas were being discussed and thrown around. And the idea of genuinely going back to put the founders' names above the door was just the best, most fascinating thought that anyone came up with. So that's the start point, like what's genuinely interesting and likely to get people talking and thinking differently about, you know, the way they live their lives. And the idea behind this, I'm guessing that this is almost sheer coincidence that it falls in line with Article 50 week. But it kind of highlights some of the issues, doesn't it, that is faced by Britain's departure from the EU, Mm. such as Mm -hmm. intolerance. Yes, I personally knew that Article 50 was likely to be triggered this week in March. We talked about it. Everyone knew about it, didn't they? And we felt that this would be a good opportunity to raise the theme of diversity and openness 
at a sort of critical moment in time. So it's part accidental and part deliberate, to be honest. But the company itself, or I should say the industry as a whole, advertising and marketing has probably got to be up there and amongst the most diverse. So who are you trying to raise this issue for? Or um, to? I, that's interesting. I, I'm not sure actually that the creative industries are as diverse as one would think. So yes, it might be in music, perhaps in music and record industry, perhaps is a bit more like that. But actually, certainly advertising agencies can be a little bit white and middle class. So we felt there was an issue to be raised and something to be done. The conversation's been going on in the creative industry for, for you know a good number of years and getting increasingly loud over the last three or four years, uh, mainly around gender, actually, more than anything else, but a little bit also about ethnic diversity. And there's been awful lot of organizations and competitors of ours and so on who are talking a good game. And we felt like we had actually been making genuinely substantial efforts over a period of time. And we wanted to take it to the next level and not just be seen as one of the company's diversity washing, if you can call it that, you know, greenwashing, diversity washing, but, but actually doing something serious. So for us, this was a, an opportune moment to do that. But it also, the, the sort of happy byproduct or the obvious byproduct of putting Valentin in fat over the doors has been also to really focus our minds and our energies here on what are we really doing to drive diversity into the company and, and also develop more diverse people through the company over time. Perhaps you could actually demonstrate to us the significance of why calling the company Valenstein and Fat is so revolutionary compared to, say, 100 years ago, mm, mm. where surely that would have been more of a bit of a problem, wouldn't it? Because That's people wouldn't understand. have been so yeah. as accepting. Yeah, so as, as we understood it, that in, in you know, early 20th century New York, using Jewish names on a company in advertising, which was very much a wasp game effectively that's what we understand was was kind of a bit of a no-no i'm not sure whether that's been specifically written down but the historians who've been going around looking into the, the background of the company have found that that kind of story and for them for, for larry valenstein and arthur fat that was an opportunity to kind of get into the world but they had to do it as gray and gray was the name of the wallpaper rather than the name of the founders whereas competitor companies at the time were using their own names good american names doesn't this seem like a little bit of an expensive way to highlight this issue? Because I'm guessing having a look around and seeing and just for the sake of the listeners, I'll describe now what I can see that in the entrance area, there are banners all over the place with Valenstein and Fat's name all over it and their photos. You've also got the front desk has been rebranded. Even down to the last detail, I can't help but notice in the room we are in now, there's notepaper and pencil with the branding on it. Surely there was a cheaper way of highlighting well, this. Well, we did, we did change our LinkedIn profiles and our social you know, pictures and profiles to be that. I think it's to make it seem like we really mean it and we're serious. We really wanted to do it in every facet of the company. Every place you would normally see our brand name, we've changed it. And we would have normally pencils saying grey advertising or grey on them. And it, it seemed to us that it was a, a nice move to really demonstrate quite how seriously we were taking it. It's not a huge cost really overall. You mentioned before about it being the centenary of the company. I assume that's the significance of the 100 days. Yes, that's right. So and our plan is to keep the name for 100 days because it will help us really focus and make sure that for that 100-day period, we're actually genuinely elevating our diversity initiatives in the company. And, and actually beyond that, we're going to keep a Valenstein and Fat bursary, which could run in perpetuity. I mean, I'll, as long as I'm here, we'll keep going. And, and that would be 
helping disadvantaged people get a job in London with us and paying their rent. Because one of the barriers to genuinely getting diverse people into a company like this is London rents so expensive for people. So if I want to get someone from a disadvantaged background in a northern city, for example, then it's a bit of a big difficult move for them to make. Otherwise, that's the plan. Goodness, very admirable indeed, I'm sure. But as far as you are concerned there's also i'm guessing a bit of a personal reason behind this as well because am i right in thinking that you sort of have jewish blood in you as well how did you spot it <laughs> <laughs> well i'm i'm a, i'm the product of a i've got a jewish father and a northern irish catholic mother so i'm sort of lost somewhere in the middle i'm afraid yeah i mean is it a personal thing Kind of, but I was thinking when we were sort of really considering doing this at the end of last year, I was thinking, A, the backdrop of the sort of rising intolerance that we see and the sort of insularity of British society was bothering me. And it bothered me wherever, whatever my background was, frankly. And I've got young children and I think I don't really want to push them into a world which is less tolerant than the one that we grew up in. That, that really bothers me, actually. And I also thought to myself, if, if there was such a thing as an advertising agency in 1930s Berlin, what would they have done? What should they have done? I'm sure they did do things, but it just struck me that we should try and make a bit of a point. We're, we have some discretion to make a point about sort of where we want to run our company and the sort of world we want to create. There's a moral and ethical dimension to it. So it's, well, I, I want to run a company that's open and liberal and inclusive and brings the best talent from around the world and supports that. There's a uh, economic element to it. So there's studies by famous management consultancies like McKinsey that show that companies that have more diverse workforces are more profitable. So that's a kind of capitalist aspect on it and frankly as a creative perspective which is what we're in the business of which is the more different people you have the more powerful your ideas are because you have collisions of interesting different perspectives on problems and you get more original solutions out so for us it works on so many levels to to kind of get behind it and not all of them are selfless some are kind of you know corporate but but they work just a thought what happens if the name sticks after 100 days? Aren't Someone you going to have this. to go through about a whole rebranding campaign all over again? Grey globally has a presence. And so in there, I think there are 96 offices around the, around the planet. It's a quite small fry then. Yeah, they're, they're called Grey. Um, they're all different sizes. The biggest two are London and New York. And so um, Grey globally will, will persist. Although since we've done this initiative here in London, some of our colleagues in other markets, are, other countries are sort of saying, well, we're quite interested in that idea. So um, we may see it spread out across the network. But um, yeah, we'll see. Speaking of colleagues, what's been the reaction for some of your competitors? Have they started following suit? Well, I mean, like I say, there's been this sort of long-term talk around diversity, and I think people are trying quite hard to get into it. Competitors have been very, you know, it's quite a small industry. They've actually been quite friendly about it and warm and welcoming. What we hope to do actually is try and harness more of what's going on and put some more specific initiatives around it. So we're about to launch a task force in April that will bring together the most forward-thinking companies that are trying to do this in our market. Because I think together, there's more of us working together, we'll have more impact. There's also an industry body called the IPA, Institute in Practitioners of Advertising, that will, will help alongside that as well. Bottom line, what is it you hope will come out of all of this? Two things, I think. It's a brilliant question, you know, what's going to come out of it. Two things. One is a real marker to my friends and colleagues who work in this company that we're taking diversity seriously and we're actually putting specific initiatives behind and money behind it. And the second is to push a big sort of point out into the wider market, which is that we are a progressive, open-minded organization and we will welcome the best talent wherever it comes from. 
fascinating, isn't it? Leo Raymond there, the CEO of the newly renamed Valenstina and Fat, talking to me there, telling me why his company felt the need to go back to the name given by the Jewish founders. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by lawyer Denise Lester and corporate presenter Jeremy Jacobs. They'll be discussing how the UK leaving the EU could affect European Jewry. Plus, Tony Honigberg will be finding out all about UJIA's It's Ladies' Night. But first, we all know that Jews have a certain association with the rag trade, and a new play called Gone for a Burton explores this further. It's written by Norma Cohen and is set in 1950s Liverpool. To find out more about it, arts editor Kate Fulton has been speaking to Jake Murray, the director, just ahead of a play reading that will be performed at JW3 on Tuesday the 4th of April. Kate started by asking Jake to tell us about his cultural background. I'm a theatre director. I have been for about um, 23, 34 years, I think. Um, recently moved to Durham, having been in London for the last eight years. My Jewish background, my father is Jewish, goes all the way back to Poland. Interestingly enough, the name of the lead character in the play that I'm doing is the name of my Jewish grandmother, who died last year, Geitel, from uh, Poland, which is quite moving for me. And the play itself means an awful lot to me because my great-grandparents had a similar story in that they came over from... Poland in the 1920s and ended up in the East End. And they started out by, um, at night, going to sock factories and pairing up reject socks. So they would find two red socks that were the same and pair them up. And they would sell them on the market during the day. And they built this up to a multi-million pound clothes firm, which they eventually sold. So the world of the play, which is all about a Jewish tailor in in Liverpool in his personal home and, and shop, which is being threatened by a bigger chain, is very resonant for me. Ah, so, yeah. so well, well, we'll come on to the play in a minute. But you're, sure. you're directing the play. What else have you directed? Just so you can set you in a bit of context. Sure. I've worked all over. I've done over 70 productions all over the country, from the Edinburgh Festival to the London Fringe, West End. I've also worked a lot in the regions. For seven years, I was at the Royal Exchange here in Manchester. I've also worked in Nottingham, Ipswich, Chichester all sorts of places and I've run my own company a couple of times and I've just launched a new company which is going to be doing shows up in the north of England so it'll be in Durham, Manchester, Leeds, places like that, Liverpool hopefully and we have our first production this October in fact both in Durham and Manchester. You're now bringing the very cities together because you've got a a play that you're directing which is about Liverpudlians and it's in London and it's at JW3. Tell us a bit about the play. It's set just after the Second World War, and it's about a Jewish family. It's based on the author Norma Cohen's life, and you've basically got three generations. It's a, a Jewish tailor called Label, who's from the Shtetls in um, Eastern Europe. He's a first-generation immigrant with his wife, Geitel, and he has his own tailor shop, haberdashery, and he must be in his 60s sort of older man. And what happens is over the road, his old nemesis from the Shtetls opens a branch of Burton's and starts to threaten, obviously, the trade of his own family and shop. And it becomes a kind of battle between him to try and keep the shop open and against this huge kind of corporation, as it were, the beginnings of our 
modern corporations. And then his son, Jack, is a radical leftist. He's a kind of communist Marxist trying to run for the election, post-war elections. And then you've got their children, one of whom is obviously based on Norma herself. So you've got basically this kind of wonderful family drama of three generations, all with very different views of how things should be. But it's the beginning of our modern time, and it's very resonant now when we have all this debate about corporations, et cetera, et cetera, and, and people losing their small homes and, and jobs and uh, businesses to these big, big companies. So it's a kind of bit of history. Uh, it's got a lot of politics in it. It's very funny. It's very warm. It's very Jewish. It's very resonant of a lot of Jewish families after the Second World War, I think, particularly ones that had come over just before the war or just after. Um, and Britain in a time of massive change, you know, it was just after the war when the Labour government had been in and, and everything was changing. And it's it's a beautiful piece. Very funny, very observed, very personal. Sounds interesting. Uh, you said it's written by Norma Cohen. Yeah. So it's her family. Yeah, Norma's, Norma's um, Liverpool Jewish in origin. She's an actress and also a writer. And it's not, strictly speaking, it's not, I don't think it's absolutely autobiographical, but it's heavily based on her own experience growing up in Liverpool just after the war. So her character is a kind of young girl um, with a brother who's observing everything that's going on. It's like all those wonderful plays like The Glass Menagerie or The Long Day's Journey in Tonight. It's based on her family, but it's not her family, if you know what I mean. Yes. In fact, Um, listeners may remember that we had Norma on the show a few weeks ago. She was in Two Sisters. Yes, that's right. So that will be interesting to see what she is performing, what she's put on as a playwright. It's going to be at JW3, which is on the Finchley Road in London. What is a rehearsed play reading? It's billed as a rehearsed play reading. Yeah. Well, a rehearsed play reading is a little bit like a radio play. You're not quite doing a full production. So the scripts will be in hand. And it's kind of like, but it will still be, we'll have spent the day working on it. So the actors will have been reading through it. We'll still be talking about character and everything. So they'll give it their all. The actors tend to sit in front of the audience and you hear the play performed. It's often very exciting. I've been doing it. It's it's something that people do all over in theatre, where you try scripts out and you develop them and and have an experience of them alive. So it's a little bit like a radio play is is what the experience will be. Is it the first time they've read the play together? Yes. Yeah. And we've got some really nice actors coming in. It's a very high calibre of actor. So people are really responding to the script. So, yeah. Yes, it'll be literally their first go at it. Um, not, as I say, Norma's been working on it for some time, and this is all part of the process of the play coming into shape and coming to life. But all the other actors, it's going to is the ending as much as a surprise for them as for us? Oh, I see. No, no, they will have read it. No, they will have read it when they accepted the job. They, they were sent the script, so they've all read the script. So they'll have obviously been prepped for it, and they'll spend the day working on it. So it will be rehearsed. So it'll be new to the audience, but it won't. It'll be newish. And the audience would sit in front of them and just watch them read, if you like. Yes. Yeah, exactly. There'll be a bit of music. It's a lovely thing to do. What's nice for the audience is you feel that you're part of the genesis of a new play and you're you're hearing something no one else has heard and you're seeing it before it's, do you know what I mean? It's come fully to life. So you're kind of, what's lovely is that the audience come in and they're part of the process. Do you know what I mean? And then obviously afterwards, everyone mills around and people might want to speak to Norma and say, we liked this, we didn't like that. And do you know what I mean? It's, yes, a, it's, it's very interactive. kind of part of a two-way process. Yes, it's an interactive experience, exactly. I understand yeah. it. Are the theatre tickets left? Can we? Can we? anybody just go in or do you need to book? Is it like sort of formal? Um, it's completely open to the public. I don't think we're doing it in a massive room. So if you if you want to go, there's a clever idea to, to book. All the information's on the website for JW3. If you type in Gone for a Button or look on the date, which is the 4th of April, 730 
all the information is there everybody's going to be welcome no one will be turned away so if you want to have a really lovely experience in the theater or not in the theater but lovely experience of theater it would be a really nice thing to see people at and where will you be taking the play afterwards or is this this the only the only opportunity to hear it we're hoping that we'll get it on we're hoping that someone will pick up on it we've obviously invited some theaters to come and have a look and we send it round norman may want to keep working on the play but the goal is eventually to have it staged so we're hoping that the next step is to is to see where it goes next but uh, that's all in the lap of the gods and I, the exciting thing about the readings is to see how it plays Jake Murray, the director of Norma Cohen's play Gone for a Burton. If you would like more information, including on how you can get tickets to the play reading at JW3 on the 4th of April, then you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze. Don't forget, we live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime. The address is coming up, but it gives you the chance to comment along as the discussion unfolds, and we'll try and read out some of those comments as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Now, UJIA hosted their annual It's Ladies' Night event this week. It saw more than 300 women from across the UK Jewish community come together in central London. Part of the evening honoured three exceptional young talents in the form of Jewish Labour Movement Director Ella Rose, NUS National Executive Committee member Izzy Lenger and Zohar Isakov, graduate of Carmiel Children's Village and the Western Galilee College. Tony Honigberg has been speaking to Izzy and Zoar following their awards. Tony started by asking Izzy to tell us how she got involved in Jewish leadership. I went to North London Collegiate School at NLCS. I was the president of the Jewish Society, where I worked quite closely with the UJA Jams. I then went on FZY year course, 2012-2013, to Israel. And since being at university in Birmingham, I have held positions of responsibility within my Jewish society. And for the past two years, I've sat on the National Union of Students National Executive Council. And now over to you, Zohar. Tell me a little bit about yourself and your upbringing. I made Aliyah with my parents when I was two years old from the former Soviet Union. And we lived in Akko till uh, 10 years old. And then I moved to uh, Kfar Eladim Children's Village where I'm working now as a parent. The place that I uh, grew up, it's an outstanding place. Uh, lots of uh, kids reaching there because uh, they have problems at their homes. So uh, this place is helping for them and uh, give them all their needs and take care of them. Saving, when, when, uh, literally, this place saving lives. When you grew up, yes. you lived in Akko, yes. which is an Israeli Arab neighborhood. It's not Arab; it's like mixed. Uh, it's a mixture. An it's Israeli a mixed, Arab. yes, it's a mixed population, Arabs and Jews. When I was a kid, uh, there was a lot of tension between the populations. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of fights, and uh, always was a violence between the kids. It's not good. As a kid, as a kid, I felt that this place is not, it's not good for me. Right. So I need. So I had to move from this place. Right. And then you went to the Kamiel yes. Children's yes. Village. Yes. Right. Back to you, Izzy. What was your motive for getting involved in so many things? 
Well, actually, funnily enough, originally to get involved with student politics, I didn't do it solely to kind of represent Jews. So after my gap year and kind of with my youth movement background in FZY kind of giving me such a strong identity, part of the reason I did want to get involved was to kind of represent Jewish students and ensure that there was strong Jewish representation in my student union. But the other reason, which also played a large part, was because I saw changes that I just wanted to make and issues that I thought I wanted to help tackle kind of within education and higher education in general. And also kind of with welfare on my campus and the welfare of students. It was kind of split into two, a two-pronged approach. First of all was to represent Jewish students, but other was because there was wider issues that I saw, things like changes I wanted to make and things I want to get involved with. Because you, you actually did something quite remarkable, didn't you, with regarding anti-Semitism. Tell us a little bit about that. I vocally speak out against anti-Semitism quite a lot in, in the student movement and on campus and in society. But so there was one day, actually, I was walking around campus and I found a sticker that had a photo of Hitler. It was actually posted in, like, in the centre of campus, really, by the library with a lot of footfall. And it had a photo of Hitler and it said that Hitler was right. And kind of upon seeing that, I was like shocked, upset, extremely disheartened, scared, really that there were people lurking around my campus and kind of other campuses across the UK as well that wanted to make me feel that I wasn't welcome and I wasn't safe on my campus as well as kind of my other Jewish peers and other and other minority groups. I didn't want to kind of just let this, you know, <laughs> upset me and, and not let people know about what Jewish students and other students are facing on their campuses in this day. So I took to Twitter and I decided to tweet the photo said something along the lines of for those who don't believe that you know anti-semitism is is prevalent on campus this was stuck up on my campus today and the reaction that I got was obviously something that I would never expect to have received I was kind of met with a torrent of anti-semitic abuse and I think it numbered over 2,024 hours in that was kind of threats abuse a lot of holocaust imagery and cartoons were being used and my face kind of imposed on things like that but a lot of threats and by some people who kind of based locally, apparently, and some also from, you know, in, internationally, people jumping on the bandwagon of all this abuse. I decided to then um, retweet, so reshare that everything that was coming into my inbox because there was no point in it just sitting there. And kind of that also obviously triggered a lot more. But that was the main, the, main the worst reaction I've ever got to kind of standing up against anti-Semitism. Um, but it does still continue today. Yes, well, well done you, and, oh, and of course, hopefully a lot more people will follow in your footsteps with uh -huh. that. When you got this award, what was your reaction? Of course, I was excited. And myself, I didn't thought that uh, I deserve it, because what I'm doing in a children's village, I see it as uh, my duty, because this place gave a lot to me, literally saved me. So my nearest thing that I can do is to help them with the way I do now. That's to give back it's, something it's to my them giving, that they've given to you. It's my giving back to this place. I'm so honored that I uh, accept this award. And uh, one more thing that I wanted to say, it's I'm not the only one who deserved this award because a lot of kids who grew up with me also giving back mm. to the children's village as a parents or a Anything that uh, the village needs, uh, they help. The, they help. Good. This award is not just for me. It's, it's for, the, for, the whole for all for all the kids, the, the, the kids that grew up there, and uh, now they're giving back. Tell me about the evening of, of the award ceremony. 
Oh, the evening was wonderful. It was really, really lovely. It was great to be surrounded by so many like inspirational women in the community who have done so much and just to celebrate like achievements of like women in our community as well, which was amazing. And like kind of what Zoha said, it was an honour to be to be recognised. I was extremely humbled by like the support and the the wishes that everyone was giving. It was wonderful. I had a really lovely time, especially as you didn't expect it. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, well, again, kind of like Zoha. Like when I got the the message that I I had won the award, I was you know deeply humbled and mm. again didn't think I deserved it or or expected it at all. Nice, <laughs> nice to be recognised when you you're not going out to be recognised. That's <laughs> the, the good thing about it. And and a question to both of you, and and I'll put the question to Zoha first. What advice would you give to other youngsters? I wanted to, to say that all the youngsters that do as I do helping others it's very important to do so because when they do so they helping others and when you help others you uh, move them from their their horrible life which this happened and this kid can see his uh, future more brighter so you move him from the darkness to, to, light. to light and this is what's important and this is what's leading us to do the work that we do and when you get back to israel you're you're encourage others to do the same thing yeah of course yeah. always always good and izzy to you the same question really what advice would you give to other youngsters i would obviously really encourage everyone that whenever they do see like oppression in society or particularly anti-semitism but any oppression that anyone might face jewish or non-jewish to stand up against it and not to be a bystander and I get that it can be really scary and it can be intimidating but for them to know that there are like amazing support networks and whilst speaking out against it can you see kind of the effects that a lot of people face when they speak out against things and a lot of them can be quite nasty but I do want to really encourage young people to stand up always for what they believe in and to speak out against injustice kind of in society and and to be proud about what they stand for. Izzy Lenger and Zoar Izakov speaking to Tony Honigberg there. Mazel tov to them. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today is lawyer Denise Lester and corporate presenter Jeremy Jacobs. The subject today is inspired by the interview we heard with Phil a little earlier on. In light of Article 50 being triggered, symbolising the official departure of the UK from the European Union, a London-based advertising agency has rebranded to a name given by their Jewish founders to highlight tolerance or the potential lack of it. With this in mind, we thought we'd question how we feel the UK's departure from the EU will affect European Jewry. Denise, let's start with you. In what way do you think that the UK officially leaving the European Union will impact on Jews? To be quite frank, there will be a nervousness amongst certain of the Jewish community perhaps a feeling that um, there will be a lack of overall cohesion. But yet, that said, I'm optimistic that the UK has a unique brand of diverse tolerance and also we have a very strong board of deputies of British Jews, of which I am one, which does have a very good connectivity with the European Jewish Congress, very, very good 
and solid links with the government and I ultimately think that the Jewish community should not be fearful. The police are very proactive with the CST in dealing with any issues of hate and intolerance and we thankfully, from a London-centric perspective, have a Mayor Sadiq Khan who is uh, very pro-tolerance. But the fact is that it is well known that since the vote to leave the EU, the amount of anti-Semitism appears to have grown. It appears to have grown, but it's been there all all the time. Um, I certainly think that, sadly, in our community, there are always going to be right-wing people who do not appreciate the long and diverse history Um, demographic history of England, which has made it great. Certainly, one can see, you know, on Facebook or other social media, right-wingers there. Whether or not it's going to transmute or into increase um, worry for the Jewish community remains to be seen. Do you not think, though, that the fact that much of Brexit, the pro-Brexiteers, a lot of the campaign was based on xenophobia, I felt. And if that's the precedent that's set... Surely it's going to affect the Jews. Is that not going to become sort of more acceptable in, in the British psyche? Jeremy, what do you think this effect is going to have on Jews in this country? None whatsoever. You absolutely believe that? Absolutely. So the fact that since the, since the vote to leave the EU has come out, mm-hmm. it is a fact that in this country, and I believe actually it's true in France and Italy as well, mm-hmm. that anti-Jewish feeling has, has got stronger. It's hard to say nothing, Jeremy, because it's already started. What figures are you taking from and what's been reported? All the figures of all the anti-Semitic okay, attacks, all the anti-Semitic um, um, abuse. What makes you think? The CST, what, okay. the police, the government. What makes you think that one vote, which has got nothing to do with Judaism or anything else, had that last year? Well, why do newspapers like The Times, The Telegraph, and every sort of newspaper has talked about this and mentioned this specifically? I, I take it with a, bit of, with a pinch of salt. I'm sorry. I think we are living in, in, in times of, of heightened effect, certainly. And are you living in Ivory Castle? No, I'm not living in Ivory Castle at all, Clive. I'm just, well, I just said that we are living in, in times of, of heightened effect. And yes, I think, there's, I think there's intolerance across the board. I don't think it's particularly coming in our direction. But I'm not. The, but figures, I'm not. the official figures suggest differently. Well, okay, fine. Well, it's not actually. That's that's not fine, and that's not to minimise. I think that there's increased sensitivity across the community, and the issue with the Jewish community is that we are so broad ranging. We have those that blend in to the wider UK society, so you wouldn't know that one was Jewish unless you had a sort of spot your Jewish radar, <laughs> which they haven't yet painted. But then you have, you will have a Judah, yeah, but then you will also have communities such as the Haredi community in Stanford Hill, Manchester, etc., which are very visible. And um, mm. there is an increased worry. The whole point, however, is that I think we do need to be loud and proud. I will not cower in the face of terrorism. I said that after the Charlie Hebdo incident on Sky News. You know, Sadiq Khan has said that on behalf of uh, Londoners. And, you know, one has to go on about one's business. As I said before, we live in a very, very good society which actually takes on board and will deal with any reported incidents. And the police, you know, the police are always... So, you know, we, we get on about our business and the Jewish community have got... 
a great contribution to make to the wider environment. So, well, you know, let's yeah, get on with it. If, if, if for the same reasons, I agree with you. Nothing, I, said, I said my question was, well, nothing's going to happen. Nothing will change. But we're just taking on the anti-Semitism issue mm-hmm. that the CST official reports have said that there's a 36, 36% increase in anti-Semitic reports from 2015 to 2016. I mean, that, the figures uh, here are 1,300. A, a full year before the referendum. The referendum was building um, up throughout the entire year. Look, Sorry, you just, you just said 2015. The referendum, as far as I can remember, was, was last year. Yeah, 2015. I'm not trying to rubbish 2015, what you're saying. there were yeah. 960 reports. Yeah. 2016, reports. 2016 okay. there were 1,309, a 36% right, increase okay. Fine. from 2015. And in fact, okay. it's, it's proved by the local synagogue that is just down the road from me, mm-hmm. where they have for a long time had a lot of security on mm. Shabbat when you go to synagogue, mm. when you go to the service. It has, in the last few weeks and months even, the security has become even greater and they take go to even greater care because they are more worried. I'm not minimising it, Denise. I'm not, uh, Adam. What I am saying is that I think that anti-Semitism was always there anyway and this country leaving the European Union, as far as I'm concerned, it shouldn't make any difference. Anti-Semitism is anti-Semitism. And, yes. how, do we, and how do we know this hasn't, been, this hasn't been coming from another angle? I think a lot of people are blaming Brexit for a lot of things. I think it's bang out of order. I tend to agree in terms of the increased heightened security. One is part of a more complex picture. And I don't think that the Article 50 pre-triggering process and post-triggering will necessarily affect that. What I do think is going to happen is it's going to be interesting in terms of the economic migration of the Jewish community. For example, you've had many of the French community coming over and living in London and now if there's going to be, depending on how the rights of European citizens are protected and the Lords batted in favour of that protection and were not backed by the House of Commons in terms of the exit legislation, how the French community are now going to feel and as a family lawyer, more generally, I predict more marriages with Europeans to help migration. But I go off on a tangent. The Prime Minister has said that she's very keen that people like the French who have come over Mm. here will stay here and all the Europeans will be allowed to continue living here Mm. as long as the rest of Europe allows the British people who are living in Europe to stay there. Why shouldn't they? Well, the issue with that, I mean, the legal issue is that that nothing um, has been sorted out and the Lords, on an unprecedented level, tried valiantly to um, secure that protection in terms of legislative drafting and that didn't occur. Um, How that now transmutes out in terms of the Jewish community, I mean, you know, previous programmes have dealt with the fact that those um, with European ancestry, for example, the German descents, have been looking at dual nationality in Germany. And one could predict that being going on an exponential basis. I I predict um, more European marriages. I think there is arguably, um, there is a nervousness. We are entering the unknown. But I say again that, you know, one of the real weaknesses of our lovely, vibrant Jewish community besides the fact that we argue with each other is one of the real weaknesses is is that we are fearful of our own identity yeah. now yes. i have interests outside of the law 
where I may be in a minority and people are so respectful of my ethnicity and my, my race and the fact that I'm Jewish and I don't hide it. Is Why that should not, I? Is that not also a worry? Because when we look across Europe, is Jewish law at risk across Europe? Because when you hear about there have been some serious incidents across Europe with circumcision, trying to ban yes. circumcision, trying to ban kosher slaughter. Very often, Britain, the UK, is the stalwart of support for those Jewish customs. What's going to happen to those? Okay, well, now speaking as a deputy, speaking as a deputy, now I don't have in front of me the um, study where there was an impact um, study in terms of the effect on um, Brexit. But certainly there, there is a worry in terms of ritual slaughter, you know, cashering of meat, shechita. And I will say to the community that there is a very strong cohesion and dialogue between with the Board of Deputies representing and also the Muslim community and the European communities to protect Shechita as well in relation to circumcision. You know, that's protected. That Do you is think protected. it'll be harder to protect, though, once we're Well, the, the issue from a legal perspective is that um, one will not have the uh, European courts as a port of ultimate decision-making. From the Brexit point of view, probably that's better from the Jewish point of view, isn't it? Because it's countries like Poland, Holland, other countries which believe that kashrut, for example, should be made illegal. It's not in this country at all. No, the Jewish community needs to make sure that the Board of Deputies of British Jews, which is the body which interfaces with the government and has that influence, punches above its weight. I think also the CST is an absolute key organisation as well. And the community needs to actually stand behind those two organisations as well as others and make sure that they are strong and well supported. Is it not quite a stark sign that the Jewish community in Britain are panicking a bit? The fact, going back to what you were saying about Mm. there are German immigrants that are now... I mean, I find it quite incredible that they're actually applying for German citizenship it, it's to only a go handful. and move it's, back. A t- it's about 400 applied. Whether they were going to put it in some context, right? There's what, cut 100,000 Jews in this country or 250,000. Know, 400 applying for German nationality I think, I think is, people, not, is a drop in the ocean. The fact, it's it's remains, the fact, remains, the fact mm. remains that some of those people, some of those 400 people who you, think, you seem to think doesn't matter, were people who went through the Holocaust mm. well, and they're still well, applying for German nationality. Now, that, that point isn't lost on me, Clive. Who are these people and why, what's, what's their motives for doing it? Because they're worried. They're, yes, they're concerned think... about it. They've seen what can happen. I'm, I'm mm. not relating the two mm. Brexit to mm. Nazi Germany at all. But there are certain similarities in just changes of... of sorry, I, I, think, I, 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 no, I, I disagree course, with you, I'm sorry. I, I think there are changes in the way the land lies. That's the similarity. There's no similarity between Nazism and the EU. I'm not saying that at all. But people <laughs> Someone fear... Someone some people do. But people fear change. And this is a huge change and yes. people are getting worried. And I think that also there is the fear factor of will it, the UK be the same and... In the face of extremism from certain directions and right-wing views, it'll be interesting to see the figures of of people that look to Israel as a safe haven. We have a changing geopolitic. We have, you know, America arguably on a, a demographic lockdown. We will have, I think, 
um, inevitably a tightening of immigration laws, which will actually affect the Haredi community in terms of inward arranged marriages and immigration in relation to that. You will have people that want to try and preserve their ability to travel to Europe from not only the Jewish but the um, non-Jewish community in terms of intermarriage, applying for passports, looking at dual nationality, ancestry, not only from Germany but from other sectors. And then you will have people that will say, look, hold on, I'm going to go off to Israel. And actually, actually, from the point of view of the extremists who say, okay, or anti-Semites who say, move all Jews to Israel and then get rid of the whole lot of them well they've won haven't they i mean i consider myself to be british and jewish and a blend of the two and why should i leave as a result Mm. and why should i be frightened well my my biggest worry about the whole thing is going to drive the price of kosher food up well i think that's a good note of which to leave thank you adam my thanks to our guests lawyer denise lester and corporate presenter jeremy jacobs And please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter we are at jewishviewsuk. And of course all those details can be found on our website jewishviews.co.uk. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Harvey Bolovsky from Golders Green United Synagogue. We're reading Vayikra, which is the beginning of the book of Leviticus. It's really quite inaccessible. It's all about sacrifices and offerings that were brought in the Mishkan, the portable sanctuary in the desert, and then after that transferred to the temple in Jerusalem. It talks about which animals, which birds, how they should be brought, how much of them, what was the purpose of the offerings. It's a whole set of laws that are meaningful but really very difficult to understand and quite inaccessible for people in our times. I'd like to focus on an idea very near at the beginning of the reading, where when it begins to talk about how one would bring an offering, it uses the word Adam, which means man. But in those kinds of texts, the word Ish is much more common. The great commentators notice the odd usage of Adam, and they make a fascinating point. They say that Adam really should make us think of Adam Harishan, Adam the first man. Adam the first man was there on his own. He was the first person, and of course, until his wife came along. And it meant that everything in the world belonged to him, which also means that everything he used, he used with permission. He couldn't possibly take something that didn't belong to him and use it for any kind of ritual or other purposes. The rabbis explained that the use of Adam in this context in the text is telling us that it's absolutely vital that when one uses anything as a gift, whether one uses something as an offering to God, you're absolutely certain that it belongs to you and you have full permission to use it. That's an Adam. That's a real human being. I think that's a question on everybody's lips, isn't it? What is a man? Well, it certainly worked for the four tops. Anyway, thank you very much. All the same to Rabbi Harvey Belofsky there from Golders Green United Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks very much to our guests, Leo Raymond from the newly renamed Valenstein and Fat. To Jake Murray, remember, gone for a Burton on at JW3 on the 4th of April. To Izzy Lenga and Zohar Isakov, again, muzzle off to them. Thanks also to our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers Adam Bradley and Tony Honigberg. You could always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the option to listen again to all previous episodes as well.
The Jewish Fuse is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Fuse. Goodbye.